Genesis chapter 49 this evening. For the past five weeks, we have preached through a series on the blessings that Jacob, in his dying moments, gives to his twelve sons. And as we have studied them, we have tried to keep in mind that there are several applications of this portion of Scripture. There is only one interpretation because the prophecy of the Scripture is of no private interpretation. But there are several applications that can be made. We understand that there is a prophetic application to these passages of Scripture. He says in verse number 2, "...gather yourselves together and hear ye sons of Jacob." And hearken unto Israel your father. In verse number 1 he says this, That I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. That phrase, the last days, has uh, very definite and distinct prophetic implications. Most of the time when it's used in Scripture, it is speaking of the day of the Lord. And it is speaking of uh, the time when Christ would come in power and in glory. There are other times when it refers to the church age distinctly. For instance, uh, Paul exhorted young Timothy and said, This know that in the last days perilous times shall come. But as it is used in Genesis 49, we understand from the history of the nation of Israel and from the application of these passages to that history that Jacob is speaking of uh, their history as a nation. In other words, from the time that they would come out of the land of Egypt after their bondage, uh, all the way down to the millennial promises that God has made His elect people of Israel. So there is a prophetic application of each of these passages of Scripture. They look beyond the scope of what Jacob was seeing directly in front of him in that moment and look down through the scope of history, or we might say at that time through the scope of prophecy, to the history that the nation of Israel would experience. There is not only a prophetic understanding, but there is a personal understanding or application of these passages of Scripture. If we were to say that the prophetic application is dispensational in nature, then we might could say that the personal application is dispositional in nature. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, Jacob knew his sons. And he had watched them. He had watched the way they had lived, the way they had grown up, the way they had behaved. You must remember, these are not little boys at this time, but these are grown men that have children, and in some cases, grandchildren of their own. And he has had many years to study their behavior. Sometimes he's looking into the past at things that they have done. Sometimes he's looking into the future where judging by the way that they behave and their character... He can see the path that lays in front of them. And there is a personal application to each of these sons. But then as we study this passage of Scripture, we need to understand that for every passage of Scripture, there is a practical application. Sometimes the practical application stands out bold in uh, in all caps and underlined and underscored in Scripture. And other times we must gain a clear understanding of the context and some of the nuances of a passage of Scripture to be able to apply it in a real and meaningful way in our lives. As we've studied through the various sons that have been mentioned, we come to the person of Issachar tonight. Issachar is a son of Jacob's wife, Leah. In fact, he is the older brother of Zebulun, but Zebulun 
has come before him in this list of sons. And there's a reason for that. We won't go into it, but there is a distinct reason. And as we've studied each of these sons, we have learned a lesson either about the prophetic or the personal or the practical understanding of these passages. We studied the blessing on Reuben and we found a lesson in squandered opportunities. Reuben had a lot of opportunity, but he wasted all of it away. We studied Simeon and got an understanding about sin's consequences. When we looked at Levi, we learned something about second chances. When we looked at Judah, we saw a vivid picture of the Savior's ministry. And as we examined Zebulun's blessing, we learned something about sharing the gospel with a lost and dying world. But as we look to Issachar tonight, I believe we can gain an understanding about the dangers of being stuck in the middle. And you'll know what I mean as we preach a little further in this passage. But I want to read two verses to you this evening. And we'll read them twice and then we'll pray together. Verse 14 says this, that Issachar is a strong ass couching down between two birds. And he saw that rest was good and the land that it was pleasant and bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant unto tribute. Let's read them again. Issachar is a strong ass couching down between two burdens. And he saw that rest was good and the land that it was pleasant and bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant unto tribute. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us. Now, Lord, I pray that in these next few moments your spirit would have free reign and liberty in my heart and in my life to speak to me concerning any areas that, Lord, you might think that know that need adjusting. Lord, I pray the same thing for each and every person here. Lord, I know that only in as much as we yield our hearts can the Spirit of God have liberty in the service. And so I pray that each of us, not looking to another, but looking in our own hearts and lives, would yield ourselves to Your Word and Your work and Your will tonight for Your glory. Lord, I love You, and I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we read the story or the prophecy of Issachar, a word picture is laid out in front of us. A picture is set before our eyes that is meant to teach us something about a truth concerning his life. Now, I want you to understand that the Word of God is not a mystery book and it's not a puzzle book. When God gives us a metaphor or a simile or a picture or a parable, the express purpose is not that God might conceal something, but that he might reveal something. Oftentimes, the Lord Jesus Christ would use parables. While I understand that parables were meant to conceal from those that would not hear, the reason that they were told in parabolic form was so that it might be better understood by those that were willing to hear and willing to listen and wanted to know some truth from the Word of God. Well, it's no different throughout the Old Testament. Symbology is used or symbolism is used that it might reveal to us something or make more familiar something to us that otherwise we might have trouble grasping. And so when Jacob looks at his son and he likens him to a, to a donkey, to a beast of burden, to a work animal, it is to tell us some things about Issachar that we need to understand. And, you know, when we use that term today, and in fact that term is still a term of derision today, and you might hear it used in that manner uh, out in the world, uh, it's used to rebuke someone, to speak of them as being stupid and base and lowly. 
And while certainly a donkey is probably not the most majestic of animals, I believe that a donkey was chosen for a very express purpose. This isn't the only time that an animal is used to teach us something, even in these blessings. But how much better if you'd been Issachar might it have been to be described as a lion like Judah was. Doesn't that sound a little better? Uh, Maybe you could have been described like Naphtali as a hind let loose. That might have been a little better. Some folks might have even preferred like Benjamin to be described as a raven wolf, or maybe even as Dan is likened to a serpent. I mean, you'd think anything would be better than a dumb old donkey. But you know, when we look and consider the role that a donkey played in society at that time, we might find that this was not quite in totality or rebuke of Issachar. We, I want you to notice a few things, and I'm just going to jump in and preach. You're going to have to help me tonight, okay? Somebody say amen. You're going to have to help me a little bit tonight as we walk through this passage, because I want you to notice the position that Issachar finds himself in. It begins with this characteristic of a donkey. Now, when we think about that, I think there's a few qualities that might help us to understand what the Lord's saying here. Let me say that the first thing that Issachar is described as is as being strong. Uh, The Bible describes him as a strong ass, as a strong donkey, as a beast of burden that is capable of the task that is at hand. And he is described as a strong individual. Not only is he described as being strong, but I believe the implication here is that he's steady. Uh, I was reading and doing a little uh, study for this particular message. And one of the things, you know, if you're like me, you've got terrible attention. Anybody got terrible attention span? Internet's the worst thing in the world for me. Because I get to reading about this and reading about that, studying on different things. And I was reading and studying a little bit about donkeys and their characteristics. You know, we, I ain't got a donkey at my house. You might have one at your house. Few folks actually do that go to church here, uh, own some, but I'm not real familiar with them. But it got me studying, uh, at, at the good old fashioned mule. How many of you know what a mule is? Now, a mule is a crossbreed of a donkey and of a horse. It's, uh, typically a crossbreed of a male donkey and a female horse. And I got to studying about uh, mules. And, you know, the reason that they bred mules was because the donkey was a lot more sure-footed of an animal than a horse could ever hope to be. They needed the size and the strength of a horse to do some of the work. But oftentimes, especially back in these Appalachian Mountains and in other places, the canyons of the West, they needed a sure-footed animal that could be steady in the midst of rocky terrain. You know, I think one of the things the Lord is trying to say about Issachar as an individual is that he's a strong man. I think it's good to be strong, don't you? I think he was probably trying to describe him as a steady individual. And I think that's a good thing. Don't get worried. We're going to preach here in a moment. I'm just laying the foundation. Amen. And then I think he's probably not only shown as being strong and being steady, but he's probably shown as being the kind of person that serves real well. You know, that's what a beast of burden is. It is an animal servitude. You don't ride a donkey because it looks good. Somebody say amen to that. You don't, you don't get on a mule because I think about Festus, that old mule that he used to ride, amen? The one from Gunsmoke, not the one from the book of Acts, amen? But you don't ride them because they're graceful. You don't ride them because they're attractive. You don't ride them because they're particularly fast. You ride them because they are easy to domesticate and they are willing to serve and they're strong and steady and sure-footed and they are used as a domesticated beast of burden for an express purpose. Now, you say, preacher, that's all good, and I appreciate the National Geographic lesson. But what does that mean to me as I sit here in this pew tonight? Well, remember that though a picture is drawn of a donkey, it's not a donkey that sits in front of Jacob at this moment. 
And Jacob is drawing some of Issachar's characteristics out for our admonition in this day that we live in. Because let me tell you something, despite all of those good qualities about Issachar, he still wound up between two burdens. We might say it this way, Issachar still wound up between a rock and a hard place. Now, I want you to think about that as it applies to me and you in this day of grace. You know, I know a lot of Christians that are strong Christians. When trials come, when the storms begin to blow, they are strong individuals. I want to be that type of person, don't you? Uh, you know, I think every man that leads his home, he wants to be the rock in his household. He wants to be the type of person that when things go uh, crazy, he don't go crazy. When everything goes sideways, he don't take off and run. He wants to be a strong individual. And I appreciate Christians that are that way too. I appreciate Christians that don't scare easily. Somebody say amen to that. I know way too many Christians that scare easily. I know way too many weak Christians in this weak and anemic day of grace that we live in in this church age that the slightest little thing happens and they're out. The slightest little problem turns up and they've quit and they've give up. I think we need strong Christians in this day that we live in. I think we need steady Christians in this day that we live in. I know some Christians that if you catch them on the right day, they're the best Christian that you'd ever meet. But try catching them on one of those days. Because the majority of the days that they live, they don't live steady in their walk with the Lord. I appreciate folks that are steady. I appreciate folks you can set your watch by. You ever heard that term before? I'm talking about people that you know exactly. I, I, I want to be the kind of Christian that nobody even calls me on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night because they know where I'm going to be. I want to be the kind of Christian uh, that people know better than to come into my house and to use the, no, the name of the Lord in vain. I want to be the kind of a Christian that people know better than to tell a dirty joke in front of. I, I want to be the kind of Christian that people don't have to wonder about his walk with God. He has a steady walk with the Lord. I, I want to be the kind of Christian that, that ten years from now, unless something happened that God allowed, you'd know on a Sunday where you'd find Toby Weber. It may uh, be in this church or that church. But you're going to find him in some church. He's going to be in the house of God, worshiping the Lord. I want to be that kind of a Christian. I think the church needs that kind of a Christian. The Bible talks about, the psalmist said this, that the godly man faileth. And boy, if we ever live in a day like that, it's a day like that today. It seems like it's tough to find people that will be steady in their walk with... Oh, you catch them on the right day, brother. I mean, they'll burn a path down a center aisle to get on an altar or to shout or to rejoice. But try finding them at that time and you'll come up empty most of the time. I know people, and I can say names, and people in this room would know the names that I say, uh, that when you talk to them, I mean, it seems like everything's just fine. But uh, try to catch them in the house of God, and you'll usually come up short. I know people that, I mean, they'll be hot one minute, they'll be cold the next minute. Issachar was not a man like this. When you looked at Issachar, you knew what you could expect out of him. He was a steady individual. Issachar was a man that was serving. And I think it's good for Christians to serve God, don't you? I believe God has something for every person to do. Listen, if you're not doing anything for God, you've missed something along the way. Now, you may not do what I do for God, and I may not do what you do for God. God may have uh, specific roles, but let me tell you something. Uh, none of God's roles include spectator. Every one of us is called to be doing something for the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be serving, involved, engaged, uh, and, and incorporated within the work of the local church. And Issachar was a man that would have been doing that. 
He was a man that was willing to serve. I'm talking about Issachar was the kind of person, it didn't bother him to scrub toilets. It didn't bother him to pick up trash, and he didn't have to go and tell the whole church he was getting ready to do it, and everybody gather around and watch him do it. He was just happy to do a job. He saw something that needed to be done. He didn't need folks to applaud for him. He didn't need folks to mention it. He was happy to serve and to do something for his God. And yet, despite all of those characteristics, we find a conundrum. And I could have picked a different word, but I like that word. A conundrum that Iskar finds himself in. You see, he's, he's strong. He's steady. He's serving. He has all these great qualities. He's the kind of person that you'd think there's somebody that's going to go the distance and do something for God. But despite all those things, he wounds up stuck in his Christian walk between two burdens. We might could surmise what those two burdens are. I've got a, an opinion. In fact, I think the next verse tells us what they are. But I just want to point your attention to what God says about folks that get stuck in the middle in their Christian walk. You remember what the Lord said to the Laodicean Christians in Revelation chapter 3? He said, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, so then thou art lukewarm. He said, I would that thou wert hot or cold. But because thou art lukewarm, I will spew thee out. Let me tell you something. You know the problem with most of us? The problem is not that we're a terrible Christian. The problem is that we're not terrible, nor are we on fire for God. We're somewhere stuck in the middle. The problem for most of us is not that we're going to head out from this church house and go down to the bar and drink ourselves into a stupor. The problem is not that we're going to leave this place and go find somebody peddling death on a street corner and put a needle in our arm. The problem is not that you have to worry about bailing us out of jail. But the problem is that, nor on the other hand, are you going to find most of us being diligent and witnessing, walking filled with the Holy Ghost, falling in love with our Bibles and with the Lord Jesus all over again, walking into the prayer closet, not leaving till we get a hold of God. Most of us, the problem is not that we're terrible Christians. The problem is, nor are we sold out and dedicated Christians. We're just stuck somewhere in the middle in this walk. I think in a figurative way we can see that he was stuck in the middle between two things. I want you to notice not only his position, I want you to notice his perception. What was it that he was stuck in between? Well, Issachar had two things that tripped him up in his life. Now, if it had been one of those things, then he might have been able to move past it. But where two of these things, or where both of these things are present, a Christian will inevitably find himself living a life of compromise. I want you to notice, number one, his first problem was the, that he feared conflict in his life. What does the Bible say? It says that he saw rest, that it was good. Now, I like rest. I like it as much as anyone else. In fact, we were talking, me and Miss Deb was talking before church. Uh, she sort of yawned there. I said, boy, you know, you, you seem like you're sleepy. Did you take a nap? And she said, yeah, you know, I took a little bit of one. And I said, well, I did too. By the time we got home and got settled in, after we'd eaten and everything, I got about 30 minutes. Let me tell you something. If there's anything this preacher hates, it's a 30-minute nap. If I get 10 minutes, I, I'm up and I'm ready to, to you know, box. <laughs> and if I get two hours... I get up and I'm ready to box, but it might take me another two to get up and be ready to box. But I feel good. But a 30-minute nap, that's just enough to make a man mad. Somebody say amen to that. I'm not big on these 30-minute naps. My son, he's like that, but it's even worse. It's like a five-minute nap. Let me tell you something. You, this is going to be carnal, but I don't care. You're, you're, I'm here and I'm not watching the Super Bowl, so that makes me spiritual, all right? So you're going to be forgiven. Anybody ever see that old movie, The Gremlins? 
You know what I'm talking about? Now, there's two rules about them things, all right? You didn't get them wet, and you didn't feed them after midnight. Those were the two rules. And they started off, and they looked like them little furby things that were out, and they looked so cute, and but you got them wet, or you fed them after midnight, and they turned into these wicked, raucous, hateful, devil-possessed creatures that you couldn't do anything with. For a two-year-old, that's what a five-minute nap does in the car. I'd sooner my child be up for 48 straight hours than get a five-minute nap. Because when they wake up, buddy, I mean, they are fit to be tied. Rest isn't a bad thing, you know. But let me tell you something. The Bible gives us warning against those that love slumber and sleep. And I think in a more spiritual sense that in our lives we have to be careful that we don't get so comfortable in this bubble of Christians that we live in that we get to the place where we fear conflict too much. Let me tell you something. I don't trust a man that loves conflict. No child of God ought to love conflict. I don't trust a man that loves conflict, but I'm flat out afraid of a man that fears conflict. A man that loves conflict might be a madman, but a man that fears conflict is a coward, and he has no place in the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us like conflict if we got our hearts where it needs to be. And I, and I know some people, I mean, they just, if there's drama, they want to jump right in the middle of it. And I don't believe that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't believe we ought to walk around with a chip on our shoulder and trying to start a fight and cause problems everywhere we go. Nor do I believe that we ought to use our liberty as a cloak of maliciousness and wear the grace of God like it's some kind of badge in our life that we're some cut above everybody else. But let me tell you something, by the same token, you need to understand that if you're ever going to do something for God, then there's going to be conflict in your life at times. Christ made this statement about His believers. He said, the world is going to hate you. And it doesn't hate you, it actually hates me within you. Paul reminded Timothy that all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you're going to take a stand for Jesus Christ, it's going to cost you friends, it's going to cost you popularity. It's going to cost you prominence. Now, listen, I'm not saying that we walk around and let our own bad attitude cost us those things and then pretend like we're real spiritual. You ever known anybody like that? You ever known anybody that, that thought they was persecuted but they was just really unlikable? Oh, my. <laughs> That's preaching right there. I've known lots of folks that way. They thought they was persecuted, but really they was just downright unlikable. We're to adorn the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul told us. And we ought to put the gospel on a good standing and on a good presentation of the world. But we need to understand that if we do take a stand for what's right in our lives, if we're, if we're going to separate from the world, if we're going to come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing, if we're going to live right and do right and be right, then folks that are wrong are not going to appreciate it. And there's going to be conflict in our lives. I think one of the first things on one side of Issachar set his fear of conflict. But I think another problem for him was he found comfort in the land that he lived in. The Bible says that he saw the land, that it was pleasant. The implication here is that Issachar, once he found the land that he had been appointed and had been given as a portion and lot of his inheritance, he loved it so much, listen now, that he'd do anything to keep it. I don't think it was wrong for Issachar to live in that land. I don't think that was wrong. In fact, I believe that Issachar was there because God had blessed him 
as he had blessed the entire nation of Israel. But Issachar missed this, that he was not there for the land. He should have been there for the Lord. Let me tell you something. God blesses us with wonderful things. I look at my life. I look at the things God has blessed a 28-year-old, uneducated, obnoxious preacher with, and I'm blown away. I'm literally humbled and, and, and flabbergasted by the goodness of God in my life. But we need to understand that in all that striving, the purpose, the goal behind all of it is not so that we can have a big bank account or a nicer house or a better car or a nicer set of clothes, but the reason that we live and breathe is that we might bring glory to the God of heaven. God is more concerned with your holiness than your happiness, and He's a lot more concerned with your consecration than He is your comfort. It's not wrong to enjoy life. It's not wrong to have these things. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that money is the root of all evil. If your Bible says that, you need to throw it away because you've got the wrong Bible. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. You see, it's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have these things. Nor was it wrong for Issachar to have these things. And maybe if he had not feared conflict so much, then the comfort he found would not have been such a hindrance. Or maybe, though he feared conflict, if he was willing to lose the prominence and place in the land, if that's what it took for him to live for God, then maybe his fear of conflict wouldn't have been such an Achilles heel. But where both of these things are present, when you get comfortable in the world and when you're afraid, Afraid to take a stand, you mark her down, you'll wind up standing with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. We need to be very careful that we don't get so comfortable in this world that we dread to leave it when the Lord calls us home. At the end of the day, let me tell you something, there's not a thing in this world that won't burn up when the elements melt with fervent heat. Go ahead and buy the house. We just bought a new house. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't think that your purpose here is to buy a new house. Go ahead and get a new car. Nothing wrong with that. We own three. Amen? I mean, we bought a little beater just drive around in the snow so it'll go. There's nothing wrong. Go out, buy your car. Enjoy that if God has blessed you and enabled you to do it. But don't think that's why you walk this earth. If you're a child of God, you're not here to lay up a bank account and treasures here. You're here to lay up treasures in heaven and to do something for Him. I want you to notice not only his position and his perception, but notice the prostration that he found himself in. What did this cause in Issachar's life? What resulted from him being stuck in the middle? Or let me just put it in a more plain way. What happens when a Christian gets one foot in the world and one foot in the church? What happens when we get so dependent upon our standing and our comfort in the world that we find it hard to separate and to live for Jesus Christ? Well, two things happened in his life that I want you to notice. First off, he found himself serving the land instead of serving the Lord. The Bible says this, that he bowed his shoulder to bear. All he ever was, listen now, all he ever was was a servant. He wasn't like Judah from which great kings came. He wasn't like Zebulun who sailed to the far reaches of the world carrying the blessedness of God with him. He wasn't even like Levi who found a place in all of the various tribes and and inheritances in Israel that he might minister for God. No, Issachar, he just stayed home because he was afraid if he left he might lose some of his land that God had blessed him with. (laughs) Let me make a simple statement here that I want you to really grasp. You've heard it before if you've been around here, that nothing has ever been done for God with spare change or spare time. 
Everything ever done for the Lord Jesus Christ takes sacrifice. And if you're not careful, you'll find yourself serving the land God puts you in instead of the Lord that puts you there. And you'll find yourself being afraid. Listen, I can't give that much, preacher. What if it hurts my retirement? Preacher, I, I can't take that much time. What if it hurts and I don't get a promotion? Preacher, I, listen, I can't give this or that up because my family won't appreciate it and they'll give me a rough time. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just asking you this. What are you really here for? Are you here to live as enjoyable of a, of a four score or three score and ten as you possibly can and then leave here having never done anything for God? Or are you here to make that three score and ten count for eternity and to do something that will bring glory to Him? I see people every day that are squandering the precious moments that God has given us. Can I talk to our young people for a second? That'd be all right. Go ahead. Some of y'all already turned the hearing aids off. The rest of y'all can turn. And I'm, I'm not rebuking anyone. I'm not being. I'm not being unkind. But can I speak about some of the things that I see in young people's lives today? I see young people wasting years that old people wish they had back. Not all young people. A lot of, a lot of young people serving God and really doing something. But you understand the time that we have right now. We're only ever going to have it right now. There's people in this room, they give anything to have the health and the time that you and I have. And let me ask you something. If you come down to the end of your life and you have all these things laid up, if they're temporal things and not eternal things, what are you doing with all that time anyway? Do you understand that your, your life is going to burn up just the same as the next man's? I'm talking about you live your whole life to lay things up. It's going to burn up the same way that the homeless man's cardboard box and tin cans burn up. It's going to take the same amount of time. So what we do for eternity is what's going to count. And we better be careful lest we find ourselves serving the land that we're in instead of the Lord that is over us. And then I want you to notice the second thing, and I'm done. You don't believe it, right? But I'm done. Two things. One was that he found himself serving the land instead of serving the Lord. But we find, too, that his life became a tax instead of a triumph. The Bible says this, that he became a servant under tribute. Now, what is tribute? Tribute is taxes that are paid. Or more specifically, tribute was the tax that one nation would pay another nation for allowing them to live in the land that was theirs. You know, when the uh, Assyrians would come in as, as, as an empire, one of the things the Assyrians did wrong was that they came in and eradicated the culture of whatever people group that they were conquering. That's one of the things the Greeks and the Romans both did right. And one of the reasons that the, the Grecian and especially the Roman Empire dwarfed the Assyrian Empire was because the Romans learned this, that you could come in, you could, you could slay all the men, you could take all the women and children away to be slaves and wives. You could go in and burn their temples down and, and desecrate their gods. And at the end of the day, you had a huge empire and no one to take care of it. And so the Romans realized that they'd come in, they'd let them have their gods, let them have their culture, let them have their songs, let them have their food, let them have their rulers. But those rulers were going to pay tribute and do what the Roman emperor told them to do. And through that, you know that their empire was able to extend all over the known world because people were satisfied to pay tax as long as their life didn't get changed too much. You know the same things happened in our country today? 
I, I'm not, listen, I, I, I promise you, I'm not endorsed by any super PACs. Amen? <laughs> but let me tell you this, that part of the problems, every right, you know, when you go buy a license, you're buying a right back from the federal government. When you go get that fishing license, I don't mind getting a fishing license. I think it's good that, that we're able to take care of the water. Somebody's got to do that. So I'm, I'm not fussing about that. But you understand that when you go and buy a license, whatever kind of license it is, even if it's a good idea, that's the government saying, unless you go and do this, you are not permitted to exercise this or that right, whatever it might be. And yeah, I'm not fussing. we we got public water and things like that. And, it, and it's paid for through those things. But I'm just saying, you know that has happened in our country. And you know why? Because they were rights that we didn't care about. They were rights we didn't care about. You, you've heard before the quote from, I believe, Bettner was his name. And I'm not one to quote Roman Catholics from the pulpit, but this is a pretty famous quote that you've heard. And he was a Roman Catholic priest uh, during the Third Reich in Nazi Germany. And he made the statement, he said that when they came for the Jews, it, we didn't mind because we weren't Jews. And when they came for the, the laborers, we didn't mind because we weren't laborers. And when they came for the Protestants, we didn't mind when, because we weren't Protestant. And then he said, when they came for us, there was no one left to speak out against it. We're seeing that happen in the country that we live in. Rights that aren't important to us are being taken away because they don't affect us. As long as we've got our iPhones, as long as we've got our Facebook, long as there's some, as long as there's a McDonald's somewhere within reach... We're fine. We're satisfied. We'll pay the tribute as long as we're left this little piece of earth that we can pillow our head on at night. But you know, the tragedy is this. Not only is that happening in a political way, but I see Christians that live their life in that same manner. Life becomes a burden and a taxation to them rather than a triumph. Can I remind you of something that Christ said? He said this, Neither can any man serve two masters. For either ye will hate the one and love the other. Now, when he says that, he's talking about hating the world and loving God because we're not commanded to hate any individual. And certainly, we can love no one greater than we ought to love God. So he's saying those that love God hate the world. Not hate sinners, not hate individuals, but they hate the world system if they love God. And he says this, or they will hold to the one and despise the other. That's what happens when a Christian begins to try to hold on to the land and give anything that it takes to keep their position in it. You know what happens? Their Christian walk begins to be a burden to them. And they hold to the one and they grow to despise the other. I, one of the, I love Sunday nights. Sunday nights are probably my favorite service of all. And I like all of them. I get to preach in all of them, so I'm happy, you know. But, but I love Sunday nights because Sunday nights are people that, you know, nobody would throw their shoe at you if, you if you didn't come on a Sunday night. I mean, at least I wouldn't. Somebody else might, but I wouldn't. I think you need to be here on Sunday night, uh, on Sunday night and, and say amen to that because you're here. <laughs> You, you, you don't have to worry. You're here. I think you ought to be there on Sunday nights. It's my favorite service. Wednesday nights, there's a lot of folks want to be there but can't be there. But Sunday nights, you know, you've got folks that really want to be there and want to be a part of it. And one of the things I enjoy and love about that is because there's an atmosphere of people that have come expecting and hungry to hear the Word of God preached. They're not here because they have to be. 
There's no more unhappy person in the world than a Christian that is being a Christian out of obligation and duty rather than out of love and devotion. I'm just merely saying this. You're not going to be happy till you sell out to Jesus Christ. As long as you're stuck in the middle somewhere, this whole church thing, it's just going to be an obligation to you. That whole prayer thing, it's just going to be routine and formality. That whole Bible, it's just going to be a closed book and homework to you. But if you'll get out of the middle, if you'll sell out, and if you'll let go of the world, don't hold to it, because if you hold to it, you'll despise your walk with God. Let go of the world and allow God to consume your life. You know what you'll find? You won't be stuck in the middle anymore like Issachar. But you'll find that you'll, you'll still be in the land, but you'll be walking with the Lord and you'll be enjoying your... And your life will be a triumph instead of just being a tax that you pay. Got to go to church. That's how I pay my religion tax. Because I, God lets me live in America. <laughs> so I got to go pay my religion tax. No, 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 no. It becomes a triumph and a joy. You'd be amazed how much you'd enjoy the Christian life if you just let go and live it. If you just go ahead and let go of the world, let go of the... I, I know it's not easy. I understand that. Go ahead and let go of those things. You'd be amazed how much you'd enjoy the Christian walk. Take it from somebody that's enjoying life. I enjoy the Christian walk. I enjoy life. And it's not because I'm super spiritual. It's just because if you let God have control, you find out He knows what He's doing. Let go and allow God to take control of things. Not say that you won't have any difficult times, but you'll find far more joy living for the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find far more joy living for the Lord instead of living for the land, with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed. Listen, if God's touched your heart, why don't you come right now? You don't have to wait till the first note is played. You don't have to wait till the first word of the first prayers. Get, but just come right now. If God's touched your heart in some way, maybe there's something you've been hanging on to. We all hang on to things sometimes, don't we? We all have things that we don't want to let go of because we think we can't live without them. That's how Issachar was. He said, I can't let go of the land. The land is too precious to me. You might be surprised what you can let go of if you'll let go of it and give it to God. Slip out of your seat right now and come and pray. If God's touched your heart, I want you to come even right now. And I want you to yield to the Lord in these next few moments and ask God to stir and to do in your heart and to take from you that which you know you ought not have and allow God to have complete control of your life. I'm going to pray and I want you to come. I want you